Hi friends, you're listening to Palmetto Young Life. This podcast helps encourage and equips leaders to reach the next generation. In this episode, we have the privilege of hearing from Mike Kramer, who's been on staff with Young Life for over 34 years. His current role with Young Life is Mission Core, which basically means he helps us not stray away from our core identity of introducing adolescents to Jesus Christ and helping them grow in their faith. Though he would say his favorite role in Young Life is being a volunteer leader. Enjoy this talk from our Committee Leader Weekend Conference in 2023. This is talk number one. What a great time we have to be here together. Uh, I am really excited about this time. And uh, you ever find yourself in a place in life where you, uh, you know you're confused, but you're not exactly sure why at first? And um, earlier today I was walking through the hotel and I thought, this, was, this is a neat place. They have telephones on the walls, and they have different names with them, because there was this one, it was called Caroline. And I, I looked at it, and I thought, that's so that if you call from it, they then know that you're calling from the phone called Caroline. And then I thought, no, maybe it's Carol, Caroline, like we're in South Carolina. And then I realized, oh, it's the Care Line. <laughs> and I realized, I've got some things to learn here. Anyways. If you need help, there's a care line for you here, all right? Hey, uh, I'm excited for this time. What a great start already that we've had. Uh, thank you, the worship team, uh, just for me, bringing me, and I hope all of us, to a place before the Lord of recognizing who we are um, in light of who He is. My hope this weekend, we're going to cover a lot of ground on different things, not just from up here, uh, but also in a lot of workshops and times uh, throughout this weekend. Um, but my invitation to you is this, is that you would see this as an opportunity to have an encounter with God. That our time here, while we're going to have a ton of fun, and you're going to have a lot of fun relationships and friendships that are built, that primarily what will happen here is that there will be an encounter for you with God. And I believe this deeply. You cannot come close to God and go away unchanged. That we will all go away changed because of our time here. This weekend can change you. And I would even say, will change you. Seek it out. See this as an opportunity to allow God to get after you. So much of the time in young life, and I love it because it's who we are. We're going after kids, we're going after them, and we're going where they are. And then we get to pause and maybe realize that the Lord's been chasing after us as well. A word that I'd like to talk about throughout this weekend here is going to be the word behold. You're going to hear this a little bit. The idea of behold and what we behold is important in life. In Psalm 27, it says this. One thing I ask from the Lord. This only do I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And then catch this. To gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. To behold His beauty. Behold means this. It means to be sure to see, not just glance past, but to be sure, to pause and to look and to gaze and allow yourself to be transformed by what you look at. Oftentimes it means don't miss this. Don't miss this. Behold. 
Let me pray for us as we start. Lord Jesus, I pray that during this time, we would behold you in a fresh and new way. That our lives and our hearts would be ones that we would have the courage to lay before you, to allow you to speak to us. Lord, I know that we pray for kids, and as Rayburn prayed, that they desperately need to know you. Lord, we do too. We desperately need that. In Jesus' name. Turn with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 12. I want to jump into a passage with you here. This is a passage that you are probably familiar with. It's probably not one that you've necessarily taught on or got a, done a campaigner lesson on. Unless you were at campaigners this morning that Michael Kohlberg did, in which case, we're going to look at the same passage. How's that for the way God works? Mark chapter 12. If you look at it in verse 13, it's paying taxes to Caesar, which is a curious passage for sure to look at, as this is not a fundraising banquet. We're not going to be talking about paying your tithe and paying your taxes. And as often, that's the way that this passage is looked at. Oftentimes, this passage is one that will be taught in a church or taught in different places that you need to be a good citizen. Pay your taxes. Pay your tithe. Walk old ladies across the street, right? And what's interesting is this, is you're familiar with the story. People come to Jesus, they ask him the question, should we pay our taxes? He says, give to Caesar what to Caesar's and to God what is God's. And then look at the last line with me, if you will. Just before verse 18, it says this. And they were what? What's the word you have? They were amazed. They were amazed at him. If this passage is about paying your taxes... And paying your tithe. Being a good parishioner. Being a good citizen. I would suggest that this is not really all that amazing. There might be something more going on here. Than what we tend to think of when we understand this passage. So let's have some fun and jump into it here. It says this in verse 13. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. If you know anything about asking good questions and campaigners, what's one of the first things you should ask here? Later, they, you should ask the question, who is they, right? Because that informs this passage. Well, who is they? And it says here that they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians. I'd like to lay out a little bit of context for you in this as to who they are. <laughs> Who they are, we're going to understand with relation to Rome. Because Rome had conquered the area of the Middle East there. And they ruled with a fairly heavy hand, as we would know for sure. There was definitely a lot of oppression and brutality that went on in this time. So what I want to do is give a chart up here. The religious and political setting of the New Testament. Which informs this passage. So, one of the groups that we have here is what's called the Herodians. Okay, If you look at this first verse here in verse 13, it says they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Well, who were the Herodians? The Herodians were the group that was the most pro-Rome. And the reason was the Herodians were the ones that ruled in the area. Rome conquered, but they said, you know what? This is a very different culture than our culture. What if we promote some of the locals and give them power and authority to rule their people? That was the Herodians. So the Herodians were pro-Rome because they got what from Rome? Power. Okay? So you have the Herodians. They're pro-Rome. The next group as we come over is the Sadducees. 
Okay? The Sadducees, there's an easy way to remember who the Sadducees were. The Sadducees were the ones that ran the temple. So these are terms and names that you've maybe heard and you read through Scripture, but understanding them in relationship to each other is really important because it helps us actually to understand us in our culture. And you'll find that many of these, although the names are different, we still live in the midst of a lot of the same dynamic. Okay, so the Sadducees, they kind of ruled the temple. The Sanhedrin was a group of people that were the ruling class. They were primarily Sadducees. They also had lots of power. They also had lots of money. The next group over is the Pharisees. And if you go, we're going further away from being pro-Rome. And the Pharisees were the folks that ran. If the Sadducees ran the temple, the Pharisees ran the synagogues. The synagogues were the local expression of the Jewish faith. So in many ways, the synagogues were out in the country with the people. They were in many ways kind of like young life leaders. They spent a lot of time with the people in their community. And they were the ones that taught the ways of God. So the Pharisees, as we move across, are less pro-Rome, right? And then the next group, as we go over one more, is the Essenes. The Essenes were a group that were like, we are against Rome, and we are also against all kind of modern kind of stuff. They withdrew and pulled themselves away from culture, and they lived, a lot of them, you may have heard about the Qumran community, the Dead Sea Scrolls. That was where these folks were from. So we understand the Essenes. This was the group that was very anti-Rome, but they withdrew and pulled themselves away. You may or may not know a famous person that was in the Qumran community and uh, was likely in a scene in this. There was a guy named John the Baptist, okay? So John the Baptist was likely in this group of folks. And then the last group over, definitely anti-Rome, so much so that they wanted to um, militarily overthrow Rome were the zealots, okay? So this is kind of the wide spectrum of the people that were there. Does this represent everybody? No. But it's the large groups that we see here. So these are the groups of people that are kind of in the crowd, the groups of people that are the commonly that Jesus is interacting with, okay? Now, here's my question. Were they political groups or were they religious groups? Yes, that's the correct answer. They were both. There was this interesting mix of their political and their religious. And you kind of go, hmm, interesting. Today's kind of not that much different, is it? We've got this interesting mix in our culture of politics and religion and trying to understand life and faith. Follow with me here. It says this. So sometime later, they, who? The Pharisees and the Herodians. Did the Pharisees and the Herodians like each other? No. No, they didn't. But listen to what happened. They got together, okay, because of whom? It was the Sadducees. The Sadducees had just been stumped by Jesus, so they kind of go, hmm, how are we going to get Jesus? And they reach out to one side of the road and the other side of the Pharisees and go, hey, why don't you guys go get him? And they come to Jesus and listen to what happens. It says this, they came to him and said, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. If they really believed that, right, they would be following him and paying attention to what he's saying, and they would begin to realize that he is God in the flesh. But instead, they're threatened by him and are trying to get rid of him. So they're kind of setting him up here, as we know, and they ask the question, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Should we pay or shouldn't we? 
Listen to this. I love it. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. I love this. Why are you trying to trap me? He's turning it back on them. Because he's in a trap, right? The trap is this. If he says pay taxes to Caesar, then all the people that are following him, because most of the people who were following him were anti-Rome. So if he says pay taxes to Caesar, they've now undermined him completely. They've caused him to, in a sense, undermine himself. And he loses integrity with all the people that are following him. Not that he's necessarily been outspoken about Rome, but you see how it falls apart. Well, the other way is if he says don't pay taxes to Caesar, who's he in trouble with? Is he in trouble with the Sadducees? Is he in trouble with the Herodians? Who's he in trouble with? Rome. This is not a good situation. I mean, Jesus is stuck. It's a trap. So he asks this question. He says, why are you trying to trap me? And then he says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought him the coin and asked him. Now, here's my question for you. If this is just about paying taxes and then paying the a proper amount of your tithe, why would he ask to look at the coin? He could have just given the answer, right? He could have just said, pay your taxes. Yeah, just be a, good, be a good partner with Rome. But he says this. He says, show me the coin. This is an example of what the coin would have looked like, okay? Kind of, in some ways, this reminds you of our coins. You know, on one side you have, on the quarter, George Washington, right? And on the back you've got, well, it depends. Sometimes they have the states on it. And, you know, for a long time it was the, uh, the, the bald eagle. But what you see here is there's an image on the coin, right? You see that it's Caesar's face. So if I had a quarter and I was to ask you the question, I'm holding it, you know, my quarter, I'm holding it. And I was to ask you the question, whose face is on it? You would say... George Washington, right? And Jesus then goes on. He says, whose image is on this? And whose inscription? You know, the inscription on it would say property of who? who? Who does the quarter actually belong to? I may possess it, but who does it belong to? The United States, right? The quarter belongs to the United States. I may possess it, but it belongs to the United States. So what Jesus is doing is actually is a very similar thing here. He says, well, whose who's picture, who's, whose image, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they say. Then he says to them, eh, give to Caesar what Caesar's. But here's the part that we often miss. When Jesus would have said, whose image is this? Every person that was there their mind would have gone back to Genesis 1.27. Genesis 1.27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. This is where their minds would have gone. So as Jesus takes the coin, I don't know how it would have gone down, but he might have taken the coin and go, whose image? Caesar's. Eh, give to Caesar what Caesar's. But then he looks deeply into them. Because he has just established that ownership is determined by what? Image. Ownership is determined by the image. And ownership is determined by the inscription. And then he says, but give to God what's God. What belongs to God? This isn't about money. 
imagine in that audience, the people he's talking to? Hey, give to Caesar what Caesar. But give to God what God. His image is on you. His inscription is written on your heart. You belong to him. Folks, this is abundantly good news because our world today has no answer for who we are. Our world today has all kinds of stuff that says you are this, you are that. that it's you, it's, you are the product of the things that you do. No, you're not. Our, our society will say your image and your worth is from the family that you're from. No, it's not. It's not. Your image and your worth is based upon what you can produce for society. No, it's, that's not true. But see, our world is so confused right now that what Jesus does here is something that we need to allow to seek and soak deeply into our soul. That we would recognize that he is calling to us and saying, give to God what's God. Friends, that's you. You're made in his image. Your dignity and worth and value comes from the fact that you were made in his image. And regardless of what our world says today, it can't get away from this fact and this truth. That your dignity and your worth and your value does not come from somebody else's opinions. It is not associated with what you've done or not done in your life. It is not determined by the things that have happened to you in your life. As Allie was sharing here, did you hear her talk about how that boyfriend spoke about her and talked her down and beat her down with the words? Her dignity and value is in Christ. We know that. And isn't it great that she knows that because Tori came walking into her life? That she knows that. Genesis 1.27 God made mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them male and female. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. Then it goes on to 16. For by Him and through Him, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things were made by him and for him. Do you know what's included in all things? Yes, you are. That's good news. That's abundantly good news. We have to start there. That we were made in his image. Now we know the world's fallen and we know that we've fallen. So the question begins to be this. What does it look like for us to give our hearts, to give our lives to him? What does it look like? Now, I know that we know this, and you proclaim this all the time, right? But what we need to recognize is this. What we proclaim to others, we need to also proclaim to ourselves. I have an image I'd like to share with you. We're going to use this through the weekend. Um, it's these circles, and um, it's uh, in the middle is the heart, and in the outside is the behavior. There we go. I want to give you this image, and this may be more for me than for you. I'm a visual person. I remember things by images. When we think about our lives, there's the outside part of our lives, our behavior, 
And then there's the inside part that's our heart. And when we see that Jesus says, give to God what's God's, he's asking us to give all of it to him. The outside that people see, but also that inside that so desperately needs to be known, so desperately needs to be loved, is so filled with fear if somebody really knew what was going on. Even if I'm a young life leader or on staff. And I've been doing this for a long time. We have this reality of our heart and our behavior. Now to help understand this a little bit, I'll throw this out for just a second. What's your name, my friend? Seth? Give Seth a round of applause. <laughs> okay. We're going to have some fun with Seth. Can we have fun with Seth? Tonight? Okay, that'd be great. So imagine I have a two-by-four, and I come up to Seth, and I smack him in the head with it, okay? Does that sound like a good plan? Okay, well, I smack Seth in the head with a two-by-four. Now, my question to you is this. Is, is that a bad thing? Well, your friends are like, oh, I'm not doing it. We would say that behavior is what? Bad. Would we say that that is sin? Uh, we should. Yeah, that, that is. That is, in case you're wondering. Now... If I smack Seth in the head with this two-by-four, we definitely say, that behavior is really bad. But then we'd also kind of go, but why did you do that? What's going on in the heart that would cause your behavior to be that way? So as we talk about what it means to fully give ourselves to Christ, what's important for us is to be willing to be honest that even though on the outside I may make it look really good, as a young life leader, I know all the right things to say and the right things to do. Am I willing to be honest that at the heart level, maybe some things are kind of jacked up? And there might be some things that really need to be addressed. My friend, this weekend is an invitation to pause and to allow the Spirit of God to speak into your life. To allow the Spirit of God to touch those places where even though on the outside it might be a nice facade, on the inside there are places that need to be touched. And there might be places inside that it's been a long time since it's been close to Jesus. It might have been a long time since there's been a reality of our hearts really being alive. So what I want to talk about to close our time is this. Is what does it look like to live a life that is not just information about Jesus, but it's a vibrant, restored, alive life. Imagine if we're walking down the street and there's a huge construction project going on. And as we're walking together, we come, and there's a number of people working on this project, and the first person we come to, we ask them this question, we ask them, tell me what you're, you know, what are you doing? And they kind of look up and they say, well, I have a brick and I got some mortar. I put the mortar down, put a brick down, more mortar. And you're like, eh, that dude loves his job, you know. So you go down a little bit further and you ask the next person what they're doing. And they turn to you with a little bit of a smile. And they go, oh, well, you see, I take some mortar. And I take a brick, and I put the mortar down, and put a brick, mortar, and then brick. And then they look back up and they go, and build a wall. All right. We're getting somewhere, right? Same project. But imagine you walk a little bit further, and the third person you come to, again, you ask them the same question. You say, what is it that you're doing? 
they stand up with a huge smile and they look at you and they say, you see, I take a brick and I got some mortar. And I put the mortar down, I put a brick down, I put more mortar, put a brick more. And they turn with you and they're so excited to say, I'm building a cathedral. They're all doing the same thing, right? They're stacking bricks. But the vision that you have for what God is doing in your life will change everything. What is the vision that you have for what it means to give your life to Christ? Is your vision of what it means to give your life to Christ that you just now stack bricks? Is your vision for giving your life to Christ that you used to do bad things and now you just do good things? Is your vision that you used to kind of have a scorecard and on your scorecard, it was kind of you check off, you know, the things that you were living for and if you did a good job or not. I got good grades. I did well with sports. I have a good, you know, and you go through. And now you're a Christian and you're redeemed and you go, I do a quiet time and I pray and I am a nice person and I help old people across the street. Or is being a Christian that, no, I'm actually now alive. One of my favorite things to share with kids at camp, about day four or five, is that Jesus did not come to make you a better person. Do you know that? Jesus did not come to make you a better person. He came to make you alive. And in being alive, that other stuff's going to happen. He came to go through the behavior, all the stuff on the outside, so that what would happen on the inside is that there would actually be life and we'd become alive. This is what we're giving our lives to. We're not giving our lives to just a different scorecard to live by. We're not giving our lives to just being a good young life leader. We're giving our lives to the one that will redeem us and make us alive. And this is what he's doing for you. He is building you into a temple, a cathedral, in which he will live. This is what he's doing. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says this. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? Friends, this is abundantly good news. His spirit lives in you. Following Christ is not just an idea. It's not just a great hallmark card that you read and it's like, oh, my life is better. It's not just an opinion. It's that the life of God in the Spirit lives in you. And you might look at this and go, okay, contextually this is really talking about the church and the body. And you know what? You're right. This verse does say that. But let's look at 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 to 20. Don't you know that your bodies are, the living, are a temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? Whom you receive from God. It's the same thing. Do you see what's happening? This is what God's wanting to do. He is wanting to breathe life into you and that His Spirit would live in you. You are not your own. You're bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. 1 Corinthians 2.12 says this. You've not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit was from God. That you might understand what he has freely given you. Freely given you. Folks, I hope this lights a fire in you. This idea of the spirit of the living God living in you. 
I know that I get sidetracked and sometimes reduce it to just activity. But this is the core of who we are. And I will suggest this, this idea of giving ourselves to God to the degree that you understand God's love and to the degree that you understand what he is doing in you, the process of making you into a temple where he lives and he dwells is the degree to which you will participate with it. The degree to which you understand God's love and the degree to which you understand the process of what he's doing in you will be the degree to which you participate in it with him. And you surrender yourself to what he's doing. People have asked me the question, what does this look like? What does this spirit-filled life look like? I want to illustrate it for you here with some train tracks. Imagine, if you will, that there's two tracks. For me, again, it's an image, it's a visual that helps me to grab some big spiritual truths. What does it look like to live this spirit-filled life? Because it's what you actually are made for. You're not made to just be a human being that has a lot of information about God. You're made to be a human being that is actually alive because God lives in you. Oh, and by the way, the way this applies to what we do with Young Life is if this can be true of you, Young Life becomes really easy. Because then it's just a matter of will you show up. You get what I'm saying? Because then if you just show up, it's going to leak out everywhere. Here's the tracks for you. The first one is this. It's Ephesians 4.30. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Let this be an encouragement, a call, maybe a correction for us. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? It means don't live in such a way that we make the Holy Spirit sad. Don't live in such a way that your life is not aligned with the Word of God, the truth of God. That it's not aligned with the fact that the Holy Spirit lives in you. Is the way you're living your life grieving the Holy Spirit? Let's bring back the circles here. You'll see them in the middle. If we're supposed to be running down the tracks in terms of our heart being made alive by Him, but if our behavior on the outside is one that doesn't reflect that, we have to ask the question, is my life being lived in a way that is preventing my heart from coming alive? See, I think we do this sometimes. We completely disconnect the heart and the behavior. So we say, well, my heart's fine with God, but it's okay if my behavior is not good over here. That is not the way the scripture is written. And it's not the way the Hebrew mind ever worked with regard to this. We tend to separate the two and go, I'm saved by grace, so therefore I can live however I want. Read Romans 6. Right? Read Romans 6. No. It's not how we're supposed to live. My invitation to you would be this. To be courageous enough to look at your life and ask the question. While God is doing this work on my heart, am I preventing that work because of my behavior? In other words, God wants to do this work where I'm going to be going down the tracks of life and experiencing this fullness of Jesus and the Spirit in me, but yet my behavior is taking me off the tracks. You follow what I'm saying? Now, I'm not one that's going to be condemning or any of I just want to put it in front of you and ask the question. Are there things in our lives that, when we're really honest, we'd say, I think those need to be corrected. I think there's certain things in my life that need to be changed. 
And before the Lord, we say, I can't change them on my own. They change from the inside out. Lord, here's my heart. Let it leak out into the way I live. So the first one is this, is don't grieve the Holy Spirit. The second one in terms of living the Spirit-filled, Spirit-led life, which we're going to pick up and talk more about tomorrow, by the way. The second one is this, that you don't quench the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 says, don't quench the Holy Spirit. It means this, like if there's a fire, don't put it out. When the Spirit's moving, don't quench it. Let it come alive. When the Spirit's moving in you and saying, hey, this aspect of your life I want you to work on, don't resist it. Jump in full throttle, right? When the Spirit says, go to that kid, I want you to go meet that kid. Don't resist it. Don't quench it. Go. When the Spirit puts something on your heart, learn to live into that rhythm. Learn to listen to His voice. Because I can tell you this, when you do young life not that way, it gets old and boring really fast. But when you begin to do young life in the sense that I'm hearing the Spirit and He's moving and He's leading me in this thing and I'm seeing what He's doing. And Tori feels called to go spend time with Allie. All of a sudden you realize this is a much bigger thing than what we can control that's much bigger than just young life. So friends, my encouragement to you would be this. To recognize God's love for you and to recognize what he's doing in you. That he wants you to be his temple. Where his spirit will live and dwell. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Surrender yourself. That his power would be in you. Ephesians chapter 1 will be our closing prayer. It says this. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And listen to this. This is the prayer. I pray that your eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that, and then here's the next part. That his incomparably great power for us who believe that you would know that. That you would know his power inside of you. And then he goes on and Paul writes, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. And seated him in the heavenly realms. Friends, God loves you dearly. Wants to dwell within you. And that his power would set you free to live a spirit-filled life. And that power that rose Jesus is the same power that's in you. That we would access by surrendering. That he would remake us. And that we would learn this spirit-filled life. Behold the beauty of the Lord. Gaze upon his beauty. Because... What you behold will determine what you become. We're going to talk about this in our next couple of times together. But what you behold will determine what you become. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this time. What a joy to be together. Thank you for your word, for your scripture. Lord, I ask that you would move in a great way in our hearts. 
Lord, I know so much that we felt that while we were singing or being led in worship. The fullness and the reality of who you are. Lord, I pray that the eyes of our heart would be inclined toward you. That we would be informed of your truth while we're surrounded by many lies. Many lies in the world and many lies that have been for a long time in our hearts. But Lord, that we would recognize your truth as we behold you. And Lord, that you would make us more and more into what you would have us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks for listening to talk number one from Mike Kramer on our Committee Leader Weekend. Stay tuned for more content from this weekend.